So thank you for bringing a little bit of cannibalism back to our Keep It Fictional podcast. Thank you very much. Welcome to Keep It Fictional, a weekly podcast for book lovers by book lovers. Build your to-be-read list with Sadie, Liz, Virginia, Fiona, and Corrine from the Port Moody Public Library. Warning, this podcast contains strong opinions and may cause an increase in your library holds list. Welcome back to our Keep It Fictional book chat with the Port Moody Public Library. And today I am here with Liz. And as promised from last week, today we are going to bring you to the dark side. This is part two of our most anticipated 2022 reads. Um, So we are going to tell you about some books that we are looking forward to reading this January to April. So we do these like quarterly in a year. And it's one of my favorite episodes because there's always so many good books coming out, you know, especially in the new year. It feels like it's like a batch of new books. And it's always so exciting to meet new authors, read about new stories, I'm super excited. Last week, we have Corinne and Fiona telling us about what they are looking forward to reading. And if you are kind of interested in a little bit darker, we're going to take you to that today. So the other thing I should probably say too, I am already here saying that I'm co-signing everything that Liz talked about today because I feel like all the titles that she has chosen are all kind of on my like radar and I'm like oh those sound so good so everything that this talks about is is also stuff that I'm very very much looking forward to reading so very excited about picks today um so yeah so Liz should we get into our first pick that sounds great let's do it okay so um to add to what Virginia said I also vet all of her picks um there were a couple of books on her list that I wanted to add to mine but as we do here on keep it fictional um we like to give everybody some variety and expose them to as many great books as possible. So I'm glad that uh, she, as well as my fellow book friends, have talked about books that I am already also interested in. That being said, yes, I am starting off the year 2022 on the dark side. Surprise, surprise. Uh, and this book is being published in January very soon, and it is called Notes on an Execution. And it is by an author named Dania Kukafka. Notes on an execution, as you can guess, is somewhat concerned around a murderer. And his name is Ansel Packard. Now, he is on death row and he has been condemned to die in 12 hours. That is where uh, we pick up his story. As you may expect, he has certain ideas and certain theories that he believes to be true in his heart of hearts, dark hearts. And he's certain that his writings and theories on good and evil shouldn't be confused with a manifesto. Oh, no, those are by deranged, sick people. No, no, no. He believes that his ideas need to be widely disseminated and understood and celebrated and outlive him. However, while this book is called Notes on an Execution, Ansel's Execution, this book isn't really about him. Not really. It's about the women who have been a part of the orbit of his life. So through alternating chapters, we get to hear from Lavender, his teenage mother, 
who was in an abusive relationship while she was carrying him and had him as a child. We meet Jenny, Ansel's wife, as well as her twin sister, Hazel, and how Ansel affected her family, their family, with his presence. We meet Safi, the detective determined to hold Ansel accountable for his crimes, who also happens to have a past with Ansel in his childhood. And of course, Ansel's victims, their identities forever intertwined with his. Notes on an execution is billed as a compassionate look at the other people involved with the murderer. So instead of putting the focus on the person who perpetrated the crimes, as we see in many true crime books or murder mysteries, for example, a very sensitive look is taken at the people who were affected, whether they were the uh, victims of the crimes he was charged with or of just having interacted with them and having their lives affected as a result through those interactions. This book, I'm really looking forward to it, has been purported to be a very sensitive look at the other side and not uh, glorifying the crimes themselves, but to celebrate the people who, you know, had lives in their own rights and also some who live on and beyond such terrible crimes. So again, highly anticipated notes on an execution by Dania Kukafka. Thank you, Liz. Yeah, it sounds like a book with a really interesting perspectives. Just looking forward to that. And I know um, when we did our true crime episode, that was one of the things that Corinne also pointed out about why she loved true crime. Like she has no interest in the killer, but it's the it's all the people that are affected in it and their lives and, and showing that resilience. So yeah, so that sounds great. All right. Um, so for my first pick, it is a book that I have alluded to um, a couple episodes ago. It was probably my favorite one that I have read so far um, for 2022 books. And I'm going to say like it's January and I still have like another 12, almost 12 months to read books, but I'm going to call it now. This book is going to end up on my top 10 list. I am pretty sure. I don't even know what I'm going to be reading, but this will be one of them for sure. Because this story, it is not, just from a writer, it is from a storyteller. And this book just begs to be read aloud. And I definitely did. I, I wanted to just hear the words and hear the rhythm. And it also scratches a very specific itch that I have developed last year, thanks to two Chilean authors, Alejandro Sambra and Nona Fernandez. I have this weird obsession lately of stories about like oppressive governments and repressive regimes. And so this definitely scratched that itch. But even if you don't have that specific interest, I still urge you to read it for the amazing writing. This is a story set in a fictional African country called Jadada with a da and another da. And when Jadada was liberated from the white colonists, everyone rejoiced, everyone celebrated. They did it. They're no longer going to be a colony. And replacing the white rulers is one of the liberators. They call him the father of the nation. That was about 40 years ago. 40 years later, the father of the nation is still in power. And even though everybody is still singing his praises, 
for his liberation, for his part in freeing the country. In everybody's heart, there's just this tiny little voice that asks, has my life really improved? Am I able to put food on the table without working three jobs? What did I actually get from this liberation? This little voice is starting to grow And there's some people in the country that started to think, you know what? Maybe it is time for another liberation. Inspired by the fall of a longtime president in Zimbabwe, Robert Mugabe, Glory by Noviolet Bulawayo is a sharp, searing satire of oppressive powers that will do anything to stay in power. But it's also very much a story of a traumatized nation, a nation that has been occupied and then for so long has been ruled by the same government that it doesn't quite know what to do. Even when a revolution succeeded, it's still a nation that doesn't know what to do with this freedom and how to move forward, how to not fall back into the old routines. And when you have a power vacuum, when you have all this instability, then it is very easy for people to just fall back to the old routines. The writing is so good. And that you really feel the voice of the people in the country. And even though there's not a lot of specific individuals and characters that we follow, you can see that the whole nation is a character. The whole country is the character. And Blaweo is trying to amplify the voice of the common people. And I kind of said that the last time when I talk about this book, and I feel like I need to mention it. Because it is an allegory, it is kind of like a fable. It does use anthropomorphic animals as characters. I figured that I should mention it. And, you know, I'm not a giant fan of that either, but I feel like for this type of story, it's really appropriate because it really highlights the absurdity of it all. How ridiculous it is, you know, when you are looking at a government like that. So I feel like it's appropriate for this particular story. And you do kind of forget that they are animals. The, the writing will take over. So if you are just looking for a book with great writing, you feel like reading aloud, do check out Glory by Noviolet Bulawayo. I love anthropomorphic animals, actually. So do you? I do. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that's good. That's good. Yeah. Because I know that that's not always a thing that everybody likes to read. So yeah, but I'm glad to hear that. So sounds good to me. Uh, All right. Okay. So let's get to our second pick. Liz, what is your second book? Okay. Well, I'm going a bit lighter (laughs) because, you know, 2022 will probably also be a very long year as the past several years have seemed to be very long. So I like to mix things up a little. And since I seem to pick a lot of dark books, I thought, well, let's go with something a little bit lighter that uh, I find interesting, but maybe is not in my usual wheelhouse. So this one is called Yinka, Where Is Your Husband? And it's by Lizzie Damilola Blackburn, uh, a debut author, I believe. Now, uh, Yinka is 31 and single, hence the Yinka, where is your husband refrain? 
uh, and she is also Nigerian British. It seems like everyone around her is getting engaged as these types of stories usually start off with. So including her cousin and her ex-fiance, gosh darn it, or they're having babies like her younger sister. So she is quickly becoming the odd one out in her family. Doesn't matter that she has a degree from Oxford. What's the big deal about that? Or that she's an independent woman. All everybody, including her mother and aunties, want to know is Yinka, where is your husband? So things happen in the story that are the catalyst towards her thinking, maybe I should find a husband, or at the very least, a date to my cousin's wedding. So Yinka goes methodically through this process of trying to find that date potential partner. And she unwittingly ends up on a journey of self-discovery, again, as does happen in these types of stories. However, while normally I'd kind of wonder about these types of storylines because, you know, hey, Yinka, you're doing pretty well. I don't think you really, you know, need to, if you're okay with your relationship status, I don't really think you need to go out and and prioritize what others think is should be the priority of your life. However, um, because she willingly undergoes this exercise, it sounds like this book is feel good and funny and doesn't necessarily, I'm hoping anyways, doesn't necessarily fall into sort of those neat little packages that will come up within these sort of associated tropes. This book has gotten some good praise. And so I am cautiously optimistic that this is going to be one of those feel-good picks that definitely has heart to it and that Yinka will do what's best for her, whatever that may be. So don't let me down, Lizzie Damalula Blackburn. This is Yinka. Where is your husband? That sounds like a fun read. That sounds like a fun read, right? Yeah, I, I can see like you're like, it's not a usual list book, but it sounds fun. And we do need some of that, I think, this year. Well, thank you for bringing some light side to this. <laughs> well, let me take you back to the dark side. I'm going to say like it is, yes, it might, might sound dark, but I think it is a hopeful kind of dark, I'm going to say. This is a book that both Liz and I have already read, and I know both of us quite like it. And a couple of years ago, I don't think I have to give this content warning, but content warning, this is a book about a virus, about a pandemic, about what happens to the earth after that and after climate change. So I get it. If you're not interested in reading this right now, totally understand. But please consider putting this on your list because this is a good one. And I would probably say this is more, and Liz can, Liz can tell me later, but I feel like this is more a, a list brand of science fiction. I feel like a little more quiet, be more contemplative, thought-provoking, slightly leaning more towards the literary type kind of side of science fiction. So I think for anyone who are like, mm, science fiction, I don't know, but if you are like into literary fiction um, and just with a little bit of sort of that that science fiction-y band to it, this might be a great pick for you. It is a bit of a heavy book, so it does require some emotional investment in this, but I do feel it is a really ultimately a, a book about 
what it means to be human and human relationships. Um, so I think there's that that really centered the book. So it is "How High We Go in the Dark" by Sagoya Nagamatsu. We start off in 2030 in the Arctic Circle. We begins the story with an archaeologist who's going to the Arctic to continue the work of his daughter. His daughter had died in an accident while she was doing research there, and so he decided to go and continue that work, partly because he has the same expertise, but also mostly to try to figure out what compels his daughter. To abandon her family, to abandon her young daughter, to come and work and do this research, way at the other end of the world, what drives her daughter to do so? And when he was there, he discovered that they have actually found a remains of a girl, a perfectly preserved girl. That's because of climate change, things have been surfacing, and so there's this remains of a girl. And unfortunately, the girl looks like he, she has been killed by a virus. And in doing this research, they have unleashed this virus into the rest of the world, and it quickly spread to other parts of the world, and so, and hence, so the pandemic side of things. And from there. The novel is basically composed of individual stories. Some interconnected, some have recurring characters. Focus on people that are decades and centuries from this initial pandemic, where the human race is dying, the earth is dying, and how all the individuals, how we as a group, what we do in order to preserve. The moments with our loved ones, how we strive to stay connected and stay connected and stay attached, and how we do what we can to remember those we love. So this is definitely not a like an action kind of pandemic movie. This is definitely one of those stories that that really deals with with grief, with what is it to be human, dealing with life, dealing with death. And against this really big kind of like arching, overwhelming kind of theme, we have these individual stories, these really small moments in people's lives, and our need to stay connected with everybody, and and how important that is, despite the depressing sounding premise. That's what gives this story hope. What's fill these stories with love and with family. I don't want to. Boil too much about what those individual stories are, but there's definitely、um, different things that have been developed in order to provide an alternative end of life experience to to all the overcrowded hospitals. There are establishments where you can preserve your loved ones if your loved ones die suddenly and you feel like you don't have enough time to say goodbye to them, and and that help you give that time. To to say goodbye, there are scientists who have developed different things to help people remember their loved ones. Talking pigs, pets that have voices from your loved ones and and say things that your loved ones used to say, and how the pet owners start confusing 
or maybe they're not, but it feels like the loved ones are actually in these robotic pets. They are all beautiful, really written, wildly imaginative stories about us trying to hang on and stay connected. And, and yes, I don't know, I find it really hard wrenching when I have to read some of these stories, but it's it also really beautiful. The book has been compared to Cloud Atlas and also Station Eleven. So if you kind of look at that type of literary kind of science fiction, give that sounds something like you might be interested in reading. And of course, um, give you okay with reading a pandemic story. Please do check out How High We Go in the Dark by Sagoya Nagamatsu. Yeah, such a such a beautiful book. I love those types of books that are basically. It's not short stories. They are, but it's it's a cohesive novel. And I really do recommend um, if you're into audiobooks or want to give it a try. So many different readers to portray so many different characters and they're all own voices. That's fantastic. And may, and may give you sort of, I guess, that sense of removal from reading a story. I found, you know, thinking about this being a story in that person to that person uh, because I can hear their voice, so to speak. Then it kind of, I think that kind of helped me get through the book. But um, Anyways, your mileage may vary. So that's my disclaimer. <laughs> and the author wrote this way before the pandemic happens, you know, like, and so this is not a novel born off the, from the pandemic. It is, it's like, I think he said he spent like at least 10 years working on this. So it's, it's and you can sh- show the, the care that he has put into this and just creating all that stories and the relationships it's it's pretty amazing so yeah highly highly recommended from both of us um all right so book number three Liz what have you got okay going back to the dark side and this one is a bit of a fantastical book so again not quite in my wheelhouse but it's dark so that is that is my opening into you know, tapping into this particular book. And this one is called The Bone Orchard. It's by Sarah A. Mueller. Nice creepy cover with a skeletal hand there. That's part of the appeal. So, um, well, this book centers around a character named Charm. Now, Charm is many things. She is a prisoner as well as a mistress. She is a favorite concubine of the emperor, And she is also a necromantic madam. What is that? Well, at her brothel, the Orchard House, her workers each hold a bit of her personality. So yes, bits of her personality have been split off from her and put into their own bodies. One day, however, she is unexpectedly brought to the bedside of the emperor who is dying. On his deathbed, he places upon her the burden of finding out which of his terrible sons has murdered him. He's dying. He knows one of his sons is responsible for this. He doesn't know who, but his last wish for her is to figure out who did this, uh, and her reward will be her freedom. Essentially, he wants his kingdom to continue, but this wasn't quite how he imagined things would end. So easy choice, right? She's been living a life of subservience all these years as a prisoner, and all she has to do is solve this murder, and then she is free, right? Well, 
might seem like an easy choice to most of us, but for charm, it is a bit complicated, taking into account the history of who she is, what she is. Um, that doesn't quite make her choice as easy as it may seem on the surface to the rest of us. So I am really looking forward to this book. I haven't really read any, many, any stories um, involving necromancers, but that sounds pretty cool to me at this point. And who doesn't love a good whodunit? So putting the two together, what could go wrong? I guess we shall see. So again, that's The Bone Orchard, and it's by Sarah A. Mueller. Just look for the creepy hand on the cover. The cover is so good. So good. I love it. Yeah, that's definitely what drew me at first. I'm just, And then, of course, you read about the premise. I'm like, that is amazing. I can just imagine. It's just the two of us today, but I can imagine give like Fiona and Corina here. They're probably like going to be like, what are you talking about? The faces. I just can imagine the faces they would pull. I miss that. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Horrified. Different parts of her body being like, what? You know? Yeah. But it sounds really cool. I am so excited about that book. Yeah. That sounds great. All right. Um, so for my next pick, um, I have a, I'm going to call it a self-care pick <laughs> because, um, you know, like, yes, I have reading challenges that I need to fulfill. I have spreadsheet categories that need to fill it up but really every one of us deserves some comfort reads and for me a comfort relaxing read is a doorstopper epic fantasy that is what I go to when I want to relax which is a weird thing to say but like when I see those 600 pages of like you know epic fantasy I am so excited and I know that I can relax because I feel like those are the type of books that are designed for you to immerse yourself in and I feel like that's why I love them as a comfort read because then I can just forget about this reality and get lost in some other world for a while. And when I'm looking for like new fantasy offers, one of my go-to publishers is usually Orbit Books. They've introduced me in the past to many, many great new series. And so I have one that I found from them coming up in January. So it should be here soon. And this is a new to me author, but the author actually has heaps of praises from a lot of bloggers out there. Um, they seem to really, really like his work. And not only that, it's got a star review from Kirkus. Now, Kirkus is a notoriously tough review journal in the library world. So the fact that they give it a star review, I'm like, yeah, I'm going to go check this out. So it is called Engines of Empire by R.S. Ford. This is book one in a new series called The Age of the Uprising. And it's got a few things that I love about epic fantasy. First of all, the setting. It's definitely one foot firmly planted in the epic fantasy land, but it's also happened during the industrial age. And I find that I actually really like that combination. So it's a world where you got these giant machines. So there's machines already, but they're all powered by magic. And in this case, they're all powered by these crystals called the Pyrestone. So I thought that was really interesting. We have the nation called Torwen because it's an industrial world. Even though Torwen has an emperor, really the true power lies with the guilds. They are the ones who control the military, they control the farming, they control mining, and of course they control transportation. And the Hawksburg Guild, 
which is the one who controls the transportation, everything that goes in and out of the nation, of course, has extra power because they have all the engineers. They are the ones who make all the machines. They are the ones who have the power to power those machines. And everything has to go through them because they are the ones who bring people and stuff in and out and all around the empire. So a really important and powerful guild. Our story follows the Hawksburg family. And that's the second thing that I love about Epic Fantasy. Multiple points of views. I love a story that alternates between different characters. I know some people find that annoying and confusing, but I find that um, at least a little bit that I read so far, RS4 did a really good job distinguishing the characters and making them unique. So you're never really confused about like, well, who's that again? And, and then I believe there are only five kind of point of views that you have to follow. So that's not too many, not like Game of Thrones with like the thousand people cast. So it's, it's, it's pretty good, I think. And our matriarch is Rossman. She is the leader of the Hawksburg Guild. And she kind of inherited this because her husband was killed in a duel. And so she's trying to hang on to the power, trying to keep everything running. And she's trying to groom her three children so that they can each develop a skill and then they can take over. And that's my third trope that I love about fantasy. It is, I'm sure there's a more elegant name to this, but I call this like send your children away kind of trope um, because this is usually um, in a lot of fantasies, like there's some sort of danger to the family, maybe like their parents get assassinated. And so all the kids have to scatter to different parts of the world. And then there they develop into their own and then they all come back with a big reunion and then they fight off the rebellion, that type of thing. So um, in this case, you know, we also have a similar kind of trope, but they're not sent because there's a danger, more because of Rosamund wanting them to develop and to like toughen them up. So we have the eldest, Cornell, who is a military captain and he was being sent to some remote outpost to like get better at being a general. But of course, that's where there's the first signs of rebellion against the empire. So he is right in the middle of that action. Then we have Toretta, who is someone who can manipulate the crystals. So she can actually touch the crystals to activate them and to like channel that energy. And so really important and would be kind of a natural heir to this. But unfortunately, she's not quite interested in responsibility. <laughs> she's like not interested in really listening to her mother. So um, she's being sent away to a mining operation of these pirate stones. And there she's going to learn some dark history and some dark secrets of how they obtain this magic. And then last but not least, we have Foran, the youngest. He is a tinkerer. He's most happy when he is in his own workshop, you know, working with the machines. That's what he loves to do. But our story really gets set into motion because of him. He is a, an apprentice to the best worksman right in the middle of the empire. And one day, a rival nation, the Melador, sends a messenger to Taiwan. And they are here with a proposal for a peace treaty. Now, these two nations, they haven't really talked to each other a lot. They used to be one nation, but the Melador has broken off. And the people, um, they think that they are 
demon worshippers, they practice dark magic. And so they have kind of not kind of communicate, but they have been at war every now and then. But now suddenly they're coming here for peace. And that, of course, is slightly suspicious. But the emperor thought, that's good. Melador has a lot of natural resources, has a lot of pyrestone. If we can be trade partners, then we will benefit. So he's very keen on this peace treaty. And so he has tasked Furin to take this messenger around, show around while they look at this proposal more carefully. But while he was showing her the library, Suddenly, she noticed all the librarians. They all just sort of scattered. They all left the room. And then a bunch of assassins came in. And even though the messenger has these dark magical powers that he doesn't even understand, they were outnumbered. And the messenger was murdered. And Furin was knocked unconscious. And when he woke up, he was accused of murdering the messenger. He was accused of sabotaging this peace treaty between the two. And so now, in order to keep peace, his uncle, the emperor, decided to send him away, send him to Melador, and let them take him so that they can put him on trial. And the last thing he said to his mother was that, I, you know I didn't do it, and so there must some sort of conspiracy going on. You cannot trust anyone. Stay safe and go to my workshop. There is this special knife that I have. Take it and take it to use it to protect yourself. So I can tell this is a story that promised a lot of treacheries. There's going to be magically powered airships. There's supposed to be these war eagles. There's going to be demons, dark magic, everything that I want in an epic fantasy. And it's going to be fast paced. And it's going to got a huge world that you're going to explore. There is, of course, that industrial city that Torwen is centered in. But there's also a jungle island. There's going to be a desert. So there's going to be lots of things that I can't wait to dive in. And um, epic fantasy very often get comparisons to Game of Thrones. And, you know, like I can kind of see that, especially I w- I'm just got to a point, I'm about like a quarter into the book. I just got to a point where a family secret has been revealed and I'm like, oh, that is so Game of Thrones-like. Um, so if you are looking for something like that, if you're also thinking that, you know, it's time to dive into another world, forget about this reality, do check out Engines of Empire by R.S. Ford. You can see... I can't stop talking. <laughs> I mean, it's a 600-page book, so there's a lot to talk about. I know, but I realized halfway through, I'm just like, you know what? You're talking too much. Stop talking about this book. But like, you know, I just, yeah, it's, it's definitely something that I, I, it's always something that I go back to. Well, the enthusiasm is infectious because when you were talking about it and you got to the library and then the assassins, it's like, oh, oh. <laughs> yeah, I know. I just had to bring in the library and it was weird that that was what has happened. So yeah. All right. So yeah, a comfort read. More up my alley. So what have you got next? And that one wasn't, I don't think it's too dark. I was told it's not actually that dark. So Liz, I need some darkness. Do you have some darkness for us? Uh, a little bit. <laughs> so we're creeping back to the darker side, I guess. 
Now, this is a book that is actually book two in a series. So again, kind of out of my wheelhouse, I am reading a series because I like the first book so much, right? Virginia's like, what the heck? Uh, New Year, New Liz, maybe. I don't know. But this one is from the series called Edinburgh Nights. Yes, like Edinburgh, Scotland. Uh, And it's by T.L. Huchu. This one is called Our Lady of Mysterious Ailments. I really enjoyed book one called The Library of the Dead. Again, back to libraries. Libraries, dead stuff. Hey, cool. It was it was a great story. And although some of my colleagues weren't as enthusiastic about the first book as I was, I have a feeling that it's because I listened to the audiobook version of it. So again, going back to the audiobook, which was read by Tanashi Warakandwa, she just totally fit the character Ropa Moya, who is back for book two perfectly well. Uh, she's she's a Scot. And so you really get that flavor, the pronunciation of sort of the uh, colloquialisms, I guess, that came up in the book, the pronunciations. I had to admittedly rewind a couple of times and go, sorry, I didn't catch that. Um, But it really added to the flavor and the sass of this character of Ropa Moya, who is just a teenager. Now, yes, she is back. Ropa's back in this fantasy fantasy slash mystery, mysterious fantasy taking place in near future post-apocalyptic Edinburgh, Scotland. Now that is a mouthful. However, the ghost talking business that she had started in book one in order to support her family, including her sister and her grandmother, sadly, that is not doing so well. So in her ghost talking, in order to communicate with the not-so-dead She plays a traditional African instrument. And while that music is playing, that sort of is like the um, device that helps translate what ghosts are saying to her. Otherwise, as described in the book, it just sounds like a bunch of ooga booga, ooga booga. So unfortunately, I don't know. People don't want to talk to ghosts anymore. Not really sure. I will find out in this book. However, to keep supporting her family, she ends up taking a freelance job helping a friend who works at a hospital called Our Lady of Mysterious Ailments. And she is tasked with investigating what happened to a teenage coma patient. Now, Max Wu was a student at an all-boys magical school, but he has been in this coma and neither conventional nor magical medicine has been able to help Max. So Roba soon finds out in her investigation that there is a secret that is bigger than anticipated. And it extends beyond what is happening to Max. This is not an isolated thing. As with the first book, there is lots of intrigue and alliances and politics that happen in the magical world. So I am looking forward to this book. I really hope I can get my hands on the audiobook version um, just just to have that flavor of, you know, hearing that Scottish brogue and just the way the uh, voice actress lends that sass to Ropa's character, that petulance. It was such a joy to hear. So that is book two of the Edinburgh Night series, Our Lady of Mysterious Ailment by T.L. Uchu. Thank you, Liz. Um, I still remember when we first brought up that 
book. It was one of our most anticipated episodes, I think. And that's when we discovered Fiona's love for, or I guess her knack for being an entrepreneur. Like they were very concerned about monetizing this ghost business. So I think there were two books at that that day that that talks about like people talking to ghosts and 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 you know making a live out of it and 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 they were very concerned about whether this is a money making business. So apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> apparently not. Yeah. Uh, we can tell them now. Like you know, no Fiona didn't quite work. Um, yeah. So thank you for that. For my next pick is also a bit heavier but I think it's got really gorgeous writing also and it's heavy but in a way important I think so this is a tiny upward shelf by Melissa Chadburn in Filipino folklore there's a being called the Aswan the Aswan is a evil shapeshifter that eats humans, especially children. All the Lolas, the grandmas, they all have a version of how you become an Aswan. And one of the ways they say is you inherit it from your family. An Aswan sometimes will come to a family and they have to stay with the family for seven generations. Each time, when a person in the family dies with some very strong, unfinished business, then the Aswan will appear and they will try to finish the quest for this person, a quest that is close to their heart, that is incomplete. Until they do that for seven generations, the Aswan cannot move on. Marina Salas is turned into and as one when she was murdered when she was 18 years old. Marina is of the seventh generation, so this is the last one. The Aswan can see all, and they thought, great, the seventh one, this is going to be easy. Marina was murdered. She wants revenge. All the rage, you can feel it. You can feel it from Marina of the injustice. And all the Aswan thought they had to do was to kill her murderer. But when the Aswan looks just a little bit deeper, they see something else. A dream. A dream to be someone. And a word Marina held onto from her Lola. Mahawa. The word for mercy. This is a debut novel it's been described as a mesmerizing work in which beauty and ugliness and realism and mythology coexist. I pick up this book because I really enjoy stories that weaves in like a folklore or some sort of mythical being in a contemporary setting that makes it kind of surreal. It gives it a little bit of that magical realism kind of feel to it. So that's part of why I pick it up. But what I didn't no, and it was mentioned nowhere in the blurb, is that there's actually a local connection to this story. Half of the story actually takes place in Vancouver and more specifically in Port Coquitlam because Marina was murdered by Robert Picton. But this is not a thriller. This is not a true crime novel. 
This is a story about people that are living on the edge of the society, people who are society's cast-offs that are often invisible to us, that we often choose not to see. The author, Melissa Chadburn, is a journalist, and she herself has been through a foster care system, and she spends her time writing about the child welfare system, and she's actually made a Netflix documentary about this. And so this is a book about what those systems create, and in this case, a criminal and a victim. It's a heartbreaking story, and as one of the authors said on the blurb, the hardest story, it needs a writer like this to tell them. You have to be brave enough to lead us to those darkest corners of this life to find what is glowing in us in the darkness. And so far, I've started it and I, I was just blown away by the writing. But also the story, it sounds very dark and heavy, but you know that there is hope. They call it this counterbalance. This is a light and a gravity that is just pulling on Marina's spirit. Um, and with it, of course, is also a story of a immigrant, a story of a person of color that lives in America, and a story that weaves in all that Filipino traditions, the values of families that is in the culture um, and how that affects Marina. And so it's not usually a type of story that I pick up either, but I'm, I'm hoping to challenge myself this year to read more stories about marginalized people and just try to really see them. And I think it, it gives me a little bit of um, Catherine Hernandez, uh, I think it's called Crosshairs that I talk about on this show. It gives me a little bit of that feel. Um, so a very important book, I think it's going to be hard to read, but I, I'm really looking forward to it. So again, it is A Tiny Upward Shelf by Melissa Chadburn. All right. So those are four books that we're looking forward to. We have one more to tell you about. Um, Liz, what is your last book? Okay, last book. Um, I've noticed on my to-be-read list, I have several books that involve food. I love food writing. They're, you know, chef stories, books about restaurants, cookbooks, like the whole gamut. But of course, I also like, you know, those contemplative, uh, what does Corinne call it, emotionally evocative uh, kind of books, you know, books about internal conflict and um, how people work work through that or not. Um, and so, but I noticed on my to be read list, there, uh, there's sort of that cross section, that intersectionality between the two about food as a vehicle, uh, as a catalyst, as a outlet for these feelings. So we've talked about cannibalism on this show. And now today I'd like to talk about a book I'm looking forward to that involves a vampire and their sort of dietary constraints. Now this one is called Woman Eating a Novel and it is by Claire Coda. You know me, I don't usually like to buy into books that have hype but I saw on um, Ruth Ozeki's um, end of 2021 blog article that um, she was asked to 
read an advanced copy of a of a book, which was Woman Eating by Claire Coda. And she calls it, quote, a magnificent debut about a young mixed-race vampire with an eating disorder who can't quite make herself feed on her human friends. So, I mean, I, I love Ruth Ozeki. I highly respect her. Wonderful Canadian, Japanese-Canadian writer. So what more can I say about that book? However, <laughs> to sort of elaborate on that, just the premise is fascinating. She's mixed race. She's a vampire. She's supposed to drink blood, which she has to to sustain herself. But she's conflicted about this. She has to find a workaround to this. This character, Lydia, uh, she was born to a vampire mother and a Japanese father. She craves human foods, like all kinds of human foods, everything from ramen to sushi to cake and ice cream. But unfortunately, those types of things don't agree with her digestive system. It's not going to sustain her. It's just not going to be a pleasant experience for her. The only sort of food type material, only sustenance she can digest is blood. And living right now in London, England, you know, it's not really that easy for her to just go out and get some fresh pig's blood for dinner tonight. Now, of course, you may be thinking, well, London is a very crowded city. There, Surely there is no shortage of people, you know, that she can find a meal from. But you know, that doesn't quite interest Lydia. She's got, you know, people who live in the apartments around her and she doesn't see them as a food source. She sees them, you know, as you or I would see them. There are neighbors, there are colleagues, there are friends. And, you know, I, I have a strict, you know, don't eat your friends policy. So what's what's a half half human, half vampire to do? Beyond that premise, though, this book has been billed as something much deeper than just talking about that tangible sustenance of what will feed Lydia physically is a story about conflicting identities. So she deals with being mixed race, as the author calls it. She deals with loyalty to her vampire mother, but also branching out on her own, living on her own in London. She deals with the loneliness, emotional loneliness and the physical hunger, but also that emotional hunger that her situation, her circumstances have put her into. So all of these different manifestations, whether, whether they're physical, whether they're mental, Lydia has a lot going on in her life. And this is just part of who she is. So I think it'll be really interesting to see how she deals with this uh, and, and attempts to live with who she is in the long term. So... That's Woman Eating, debut novel by Claire Coda. I am also super excited about reading that one. And I was surprised to see Ruth Ozaki because like just the premise of the book and from what you and Fiona talk about, like what her books are about, just like that's a, that's an interesting person to to review the book. But so yeah, it must be more than again, more than a vampire story, right? Mm-hmm. Ozaki is very cerebral. So, which makes me think that this book has a lot of promise to be, you know, something more than just, I want to eat ramen, but I can't eat ramen. So thank you for bringing a little bit of cannibalism back to our Keep It Fictional podcast. Thank you very much. And it's not me who say it this time. So yeah. For my last pick, kind of similar to your pick, I feel like, it's a book that I can't tell you a lot about. And I debated with him like, well, does it make a good 
podcast book, if I can't really say much about it, but I just really want people to read it. And not only because it's a novella, so I can't really spoil a lot, but also it's much better if you go in without knowing too much about this. That's how I went into the book and I was instantly hooked on it. And I was just like, wow, what is happening? So I'm going to try to like, tell you very briefly what it is. But just remember that whatever I say, if it sounds like something you're like, ah, I've been there, done that, it's not. It is not like that at all. I think I've got a really good cover. It's called And Then I Woke Up and it is by Malcolm Deflin. This is a book. Okay, well, again, it does have some sort of virus involved in here. <laughs> Sorry about that. But it is written pre-COVID. But yeah, so some sort of virus is in here. This is a story that starts with Spence. And Spence is telling his story and telling the story to a group of people that it, it seems like they're in some sort of hospital, maybe some sort of medical facility, rehab center type thing. And he's talking about how he got here. He told the group that he was working at a diner one day. There was a couple of people he's working with. The diner is pretty full with customers. They were in the kitchen in the staff area. And then as one of them was just about to go back out to the floor, they noticed that there were monsters in the diner. And they don't know where they came from, but just suddenly there was monsters. Then came the screams and the yelling and the monsters were biting into the other customers. And so quickly, all of them tried to bar the door so that none of them can get in. And then they were trying to figure out like how they can escape. And then the cook came in and it turns out that it looks like he has also been turned somehow. And so they quickly shove him into the freezer as fast as they can, lock that door. And then before they leave the place, they set it on fire. And then they ran and they ran and they ran until they got far away and they looked back and they saw the place burned with everybody in it. Yes, that sounds like a zombie story. But trust me, it is not because that is what spends things happen. But is it really what happened? Stephen Graham Jones, one of the biggest horror writers out there, called this book a scathing portrait of a world we lived in and a running commentary on what story, what's truth, and what's not. This is a story about the power of a narrative, a power of belonging, to be part of something, and how together, sometimes as a group, we form a belief and then we run with it and how dangerous that is. I don't want to say anything more, but this book is for anyone who loves stories that just turn the world upside down. That not just this is a fresh look of a seemingly kind of horror novel, but it's the kind that you're like, wait, what is real here? Who should I really believe? And if you like that type of story that makes you kind of question everything that you see, I highly, highly recommend this. 
and it's just a novella, so short, but it packs so much inside, and it's a very thought-provoking read. So it is, and then I woke up by Malcolm Deflin. Definitely putting that on my to be read list. It's really good. It's really good. Yeah, I would love to know what you think once you read it. That's the thing about like I've been hearing each other talk about books, you know, because then you're like, oh, that sounds so good. And we have. I think we picked some good ones, and I don't think they will disappoint us. And we've read some of them. We've we've each read at least some of the <laughs> titles on the list already. Yeah, one of the perks of the job. So these are not just blind recommendations. Got a preview of it, and we are willing to attach our names to it. Well, when you put it that way. <laughs> No, no, we hope we find that like everybody's taste is different, but we hope that there are some qualities in there that um, everybody can appreciate, like strong writing and solid plot lines. Cannibals. Well, it's like, sorry, vampires. Subsector. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So don't forget to check out last week's episode where we have got Fiona and Corinne's picks. But I mean, like, they're not here, so I can say whatever I want. I am very, very interested in our picks today. So I, those- <laughs> <laughs> I am so excited. I'm so excited to read all these books. Um, and there are a lot more, a lot more new books coming out in these so many, so many new books. And we often do a monthly new book list um, on our website. Um, so please do check that out. If you're looking for more new books, get to know more new authors, more debut novels, or more some of your favorites, you know, there's so many. Thank you again for listening. Thank you again for tuning in to our Keep It Fictional book chat. We hope to see you again next week. Have a good one and happy reading. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you like our show, please tell a fellow book lover about it. You can find a list of all the books we discussed in our show notes. Join us next week for another fun book chat. Until then, keep it fictional. Thank you.